0: Great. I'm excited for the chance to share with you today. If you're new, if this is the first time you're watching, my name's Jason, and I'm the lead pastor here at the pier. And uh, before I get started, just want to give a little announcement about our online services and just kind of what we're planning for the fall and into the new year with that. Um, Just so that you know, if you're watching us online, we're so glad that you do, and we value that so much. And we're going to be continuing to offer our messages um, indefinitely, and uh, so you're going to be able to access those online as well as, as a welcome and that sort of thing. But we're going to be pressing pause on the worship part of our online service come, in, come the fall, and uh, so you'll see a bit of a change up there. Um, and as for our messages, when those are available, they'll be available every week um, at, starting at 6 p.m. on Sundays, so you'll be able to watch them. And uh, so we 're excited to to still make that available because we value you we 're very glad that you join us each week and uh, please feel free. we would love to hear from you. we want to know that we 're praying we want you to know that we 're praying for you and we would love to to hear from you if you ever want to contact us um, and you're you're not coming in person for whatever reason, feel free to still keep in touch but that 's the side of this too. Um, We're able now to have our in person services fully running. um, So that's part of the reason for this change. Um, Great. So just wanted to make you aware of that. Great. So let's dive in now. Um, This is another kind of installment, I guess you could say, in our series on wisdom, our series called Words of Wisdom. And I've entitled this one today, Words of Wisdom The Value of the Kingdom of God. Now, just to recap, We've been talking a lot about the, the nature of the path of wisdom or the nature of growth in wisdom. And so we've been talking about things like how, you know, the motivation that we can have for that path that, the, that Proverbs gives us. We've been talking about the connection between wisdom and, and life, you know, true, real life. We've also been talking about the shortcomings <laughs> that many of us have that we need to be aware of as we're starting out on the journey or any step along the journey. Today, we're going to move along the path a little bit. We're going to advance along the path a little bit. You might remember early on, I talked about how the wisdom books in the Bible, the wisdom literature, you could think of it as a curriculum. They all come together to help to train us in wisdom, to teach us, to, to guide us, to instill wisdom in us. They're meant to be read that way. And you kind of advance along in them. You advance through the Proverbs, then moving into the more advanced books, so to speak, of Job and Ecclesiastes. And you kind of keep going through that and learning along the way. So, but as we advance in that curriculum, so to speak, which you're going to see today, you realize that things start to get a little bit more complicated. Things get nuanced. There starts to be surprises and and even exceptions to things that we've learned earlier on. We're going to be looking at that today through Proverbs, especially we're going to dip into Ecclesiastes a bit. And the big thing we're going to learn from that today from Ecclesiastes is that, you know what, when it comes to life, we can't control the outcomes, no matter how hard you try. You can't control the outcomes, and even sometimes life can be unfair and unjust despite our best efforts. But that's okay. It's a good thing that the Bible is honest with us about that to help guide us and prepare us for that. So we're going to be talking a bit about that, but we're not going to stay there. We're also going to talk about how that really, I think, prepares us and points us toward Jesus Because Jesus teaches that even though we can't control the outcomes, that the kingdom of God and those kingdom moments, if we focus on those, we can count on them having tremendous value no matter the outcome. So that's what we're going to talk about today in a nutshell. Let's dive in. Now, as I said, when we start out on the path early on in Proverbs, when you read it, you'll notice that the tone is quite optimistic in tone. And, but when you move along, that sort of changes a little bit. So let me give you an example. Let's use the example of wealth and the kind of the connection between wealth and wisdom. When it starts out in Proverbs 3, 9-10, here's, here's an example of what it says. Honor God with everything you own. Give him the first and the best. Your barns will burst. Your wine vats will brim over. And then another verse, uh, ch- chapter 8, 17 to 18, it says, Those who search will surely find me. That's wisdom talking. I have riches and honor as well as enduring wealth and justice. You remember the primary audience here is someone who's young, just starting out in their life. When they hear that, that's really motivating to pursue wisdom. They think, okay. If I pursue wisdom, then things are going to generally go well for me in life, especially in the area of wealth and and kind of material goods and all of that. But things start to change a bit as we advance through the curriculum. You kind of learn for a little bit longer, and then you start to see things get a little more nuanced on this topic of wealth. It says in Proverbs 18, verse 10, The name of the Lord is a strong fortress. The godly run to him and are safe. But the rich think of their wealth as a strong defense. They imagine it to be a high wall of safety. Now we're getting a more nuanced look on on wealth and wisdom. The wise put their trust in God. And the danger of wealth is that you might end up forgetting that and trusting God in money to help instead in times of crisis and that sort of thing. They put the dangers you might put your security in wealth. So it's teaching a more nuanced look on wealth there. And this goes on and up to Proverbs 30 where, you know, at the end of the book of Proverbs, it says this. It's got a new person speaking, Agur, and he says, You know what, Lord, give me enough food to live on, neither too much nor too little. If I'm too full, I might get independent, saying, God, who needs him? So, there, you compare that, the end to the beginning, it's a different outlook on wealth. There, it's much more saying, you know what? What's best is that I don't have too much or too little, because if I get too much, then I might not trust in God. I might get prideful and think I can go it my own. So you trace the development there on the teachings of wealth, and it changes. It gets more nuanced. And actually, there's little verses here and there all throughout that talk about how sometimes you might have to choose between wisdom and wealth. And if you have to choose, make sure you choose wisdom every time. That implies that there isn't a guaranteed connection between wisdom and wealth. So that's an example of how the Proverbs and that curriculum, the more you advance down it, it gets more complicated. You start to realize that, hey, this is picking up on life because we all know that life can get complicated. Well, if we move into Ecclesiastes, things change even more. And by the way, just a a quick note before we move there, that's kind of the nature of the writings here when you see a proverb, you know, you take one in isolation, what that is, is it's something that's generally true. It's like a rule of thumb. So it's not a law, it's not a guarantee, it's a rule of thumb. And as such, these things admit of exceptions. So the whole idea is you're kind of gathering all of these together, and then the wise person, as you're growing in wisdom, you know when they're going to apply and when they're not going to apply. So it's not that One is contradicting the other. It's not that there's a problem in the text. Again, this is just the nature of the whole writing. It's the nature of the path, so to speak. So, okay, so let's move into Ecclesiastes now to follow this train of thought that we're on right now, this idea that things get more complicated. I mean, if Proverbs were the wisdom book for the young, Ecclesiastes is like the wisdom book for for the mature. You know, you're reading this, you've been around the block, so to speak, a number of, t- a couple of times, you know, you're you're older, you've maybe been burned more than once. Ecclesiastes is the wisdom book for you. And actually, I re- highly recommend the Bible Project on this. They do a great job of talking about the differences between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. But you'll know that, you'll notice that, man, does it explore the exceptions? Does it explore the complexities it 's almost cynical in tone, and actually nothing is off limit it off limits it calls into question pretty much everything you could think of and everything that we learn in proverbs. Sure, it affirms things that we hear in proverbs, but it also calls them into question and nothing is off you know is, is safe, so to speak, even wisdom is called into question in Ecclesiastes. After affirming the value of wisdom by saying that, yes, overall, wisdom is more valuable than than folly, the path of wisdom is more valuable than the path of folly, it says this, "'Yet I saw that the wise and the foolish share the same fate. Both will die. So I said to myself, since I end up the same as the fool, what's the value of all my wisdom?' "'This is all so meaningless.' For the wise and the foolish both die. The wise will not be remembered any longer than the fool. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. That's chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. So there you see wisdom even, the value of wisdom is explored there and even kind of called into question. And by the way, that word in there, it says Right? This is also meaningless. That verb, word comes up again and again in Ecclesiastes. It could also be translated vanities, it's translated, or in the message translation, it's smoke. The word there means something that's transitory, something that isn't lasting, like smoke or breath or, or even vapor. And so it's not something that has lasting value. It's meaningless in that sense. It's not permanent in value. So when he's saying that from this perspective, even wisdom seems of you know passing value or meaningless, he's saying, when you kind of you know, sure, in this life, so to speak, um, when you are living out wisdom, you're steering clear of trouble. but let's zoom out a bit, let's take things from a bigger perspective, and we think about life and reality of death, then he's saying that. In that, from that perspective, it's almost as, like, it's almost as if the value of, the, of wisdom folly equals out because both share the same fate and neither one is going to be remembered. Given enough time, both the wise and the foolish will be forgotten. So they, the life of wisdom, from that perspective, it doesn't seem to have the kind of lasting permanent value that this person is looking for. The same thing, actually, not the same thing, I should say, but he explores righteousness as well. He even calls into question the value of righteousness. Overall, it presents righteousness as the best path, but it says this in chapter 8, 14. And this is not all that is meaningless in our world. In this life, good people are often treated as though they were wicked. And wicked people are often treated as though they were good. This is so meaningless. Life can seem random, in other words. Despite your best efforts, you can't control the outcomes. You can do all that you can do to be a good person, to live wisely, but you can't control what's going to happen to you, the outcome, the results. And in fact, he's observing that often in this world the those who are being are trying to be good who are righteous they're getting the punishment so to speak of those who aren't they're being treated as though they were wicked and vice versa so he's saying that from you know when you observe that it just seems again meaningless it seems like you know nothing's properly being rewarded in this life where's the justice where's the fairness and he summarizes it well this this these exceptions, this so so, uh, seeming randomness of life, summarizes it in 9.11. He says, again, I observed this on the earth. The race is not always won by the swiftest. The battle is not always won by the strongest. Prosperity does not always belong to those who are the wisest. Wealth does not always belong to those who are the most discerning. Nor does success always come to those with the most knowledge. For time and chance may overcome them all. We're a long ways along in the curriculum now, right? We're a long ways away from that saying that, you know, trust God and your your wine vats will overflow. And now we're into a scenario where you know what? On this earth, you can't control the outcomes. You can try to be the fastest, but you may not win the race. You can try to be the strongest, but you may not win the battle. You can try and be the most discerning, but you won't get the wealth. He's saying that life can be meaningless in this way. And one of the ways I could see what he's trying to say is that if we're looking at things from the perspective of outcomes and results, then life can seem meaningless. It's hard to find anything that's guaranteed in terms of outcome. Because at the end of the day, we can't control that sort of thing. That's kind of the lot of humankind. Okay, so there's two things that I want to say about that. Um, First, I think that what's going on here is this writer is showing us the reality of trying to become wise in this world, the reality of the pursuit of wisdom. And again, this isn't the last word, remember. This is all part of the curriculum, but it's a tough slog. It's a hard pursuit. Just like life is hard, the pursuit of wisdom is hard. Proverbs 30 verse 1 is honest about this. Again, back to Agur. He's someone who's writing some Proverbs. He's someone who's a little bit along the path, but not all the way there. He says this about the path. I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God. How can I prevail? That's really expressing our sentiments at this point as well. So there's honesty there about the difficulty. And I appreciate that about Scripture, actually. I really like that it's accurately describing our experience. It's accurately describing our world. And why is that a good thing? Well, because if it didn't, I think that that would be cause to to wonder if it's true, right? If it painted a different picture, and we were reading in the Proverbs all the way through that it was just saying, you know what, just pursue wisdom Trust God, and life will be hunky-dory. Everything will turn out just fine. You'll be wealthy. You won't get sick. No one will burn you. It'll be just great. If it painted this idealistic picture, it wouldn't take long for our experience to contradict that. And then that would lead to disillusionment, maybe even a crisis of faith. We'd be wondering, what's going on here? Is it just me, or is this lying to me? But no, the Bible is really clear On what we can expect in life. And this carries over to Jesus as well. Jesus says right up front in John 16, 33, for instance, in this godless world, you will continue to experience difficulties. Even Christ followers, you will continue to experience sorrow, hardship, and difficulties. So scripture is clear. Things won't always go well. Life won't always be fair. No matter your best efforts, you will still experience injustice and pain and all of that. Now, when you're younger in your faith, you kind of need the earlier on book of Proverbs, right? So again, this is a progression. This is a journey. So that's why it makes sense that it started out kind of being optimistic and more general. But as you mature, as you go along, you need to see that more nuanced look in order to help guide you in those situations as well. And in that way, I appreciate how honest Scripture is. Okay, that's the first thing I want to say, but we're not going to finish there because that's a bit of a downer. It's a bit of, an, it's a, bit of a hard place to end off because I think something else really important is going on here. I think where Ecclesiastes has end, ended up really points well to Jesus for us. It really, a lot of times, Jesus says how he fulfills what's going on in the Old Testament. I think this is one of those examples where it fits perfectly, and especially what Jesus teaches about the value of the kingdom. Remember, in Ecclesiastes, he's searching for something permanent, something of lasting value, and he's having trouble finding it because he's looking at things in terms of outcome. Well, here's what Jesus says about the value of the kingdom. Matthew 13, starting at verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When someone found it and hid, then in, oh, sorry, <laughs> which some, there we go. Let me read that again. Sorry, I got jumbled up. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And then verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a fine pearl. And something that was so valuable that these two individuals sold everything they had so that they could have it, so that they could get in on it, so that they could possess it. Now, I did a little bit of digging on pearls in the ancient world, and i 'm glad I did because when you see that, you think pearl, you think, oh so it 's pretty valuable then eh, but no, pearls in the ancient world, it turns out are extremely valuable, like incomparably valuable, so to say a pearl was to to talk about one of the most valuable things that they could think of that you could that that was of value in that time, and this was like across the world different cultures. I was reading it on a PBS article um, from this uh, like channel and, uh, and website Nova and it was talking about this. It even brought up how in the Roman world pearls were of extreme value. There's some stories there. So Suetonius, the Roman historian, talks about how one Roman general funded an entire military campaign by selling one pearl. And there's another story of Cleopatra and Antony. And Cleopatra says to Antony that she's going to host the most extravagant, expensive dinner party ever. And so he's wondering, okay, how is she going to do this? Like, and he's probably thinking, I've been to some pretty good ones. And all, so what it does, what she does is she sits down when the day comes, they're sitting down together. She sits down and before her is just a, a, a glass of wine. So you're wondering, how is this going to be the most expensive dinner ever? But what she has done is she has a servant come and crush up a pearl into fine dust, pour that into the cup, and then she drinks it. So hence, just how valuable pearls are. Mark Antony, he says, yep, that's the most expensive dinner party I've ever been to. <laughs> so that's what we're talking about when Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a fine pearl. So we're talking about here something that is of incomparable value. You can't think of anything that has more value than that. Okay, hold on to that for a moment. Um, I just want to talk really briefly about the, a good way of understanding the kingdom of God. It's going to be helpful for us um, because sometimes we can kind of get confused about this. But I think the best way of thinking about what Jesus is saying here Think of the kingdom of God as like God's realm, God's dimension. And Jesus teaches us to pray that God's kingdom would come. And that's the best way of understanding it. There'll be times when we're praying God's kingdom come, and it's like God's realm breaks through into ours. It's like God's dimension breaks through into ours. And when you're part of that, when that happens, what people are experiencing is, They're experiencing what it's like for God to reign, for God to be in charge, for God's will to happen in their situation. God's kingdom come. So let's call those kingdom moments, okay? So back to this idea about the value of the kingdom. Now we can say the value of kingdom moments. Notice how um, in these two parables, the, the two individuals, when they get the kingdom, they don't go and sell it. So it's not a story where they have it, they've got something of an incomparable wealth, and then they go sell it so they can live off the wealth for the rest of their lives. No, it just ends with them having it, full stop. They've got it, now that's the end. Here's what I, a way I think that'll be helpful for us to understand that, that kind of value that Jesus is pointing at. Let me get philosophical for a moment. This is going to be helpful. So in philosophy and ethics, there's this distinction in value between intrinsic value and extrinsic value. So let's just talk about that briefly. It's pretty easy to understand. So extrinsic value is something that we are quite familiar with in our culture because we tend to think of most things in this way. Extrinsic value, something is extrinsically valuable because it gets its value from something else common example would be something's valuable because it's useful, right? Like, so a guitar is valuable, is extrinsically valuable because you can play it, or a hammer is valuable because you can build something with it. They are a tool, something that you use to do something else. Um, So, you know, extrinsic value an example is like a means to an end, right? That's something that we're quite familiar with. That's not the kind of value we're talking about here with the kingdom. (laughs) The other type of value is intrinsic value. The difference there is something, if it's intrinsically valuable, then it's valuable just in and of itself. It gets its value from itself. It's valuable full stop. It's inherently valuable. Let me give you an example of that. I think acts of true love are intrinsically valuable valuable. So let me, like an illustration from my life. Say I'm cooking dinner for my wife. That's an act of love. And if it's a true act of love, then that's just beautiful. That's just valuable, full stop, in and of itself. And the interesting thing about this example is if you learned that I was doing that in order to get something else. It kind of cheapens it, right? So if you found out that I was only cooking her dinner because I was hoping later she would watch the kids so I could watch the hockey game, it kind of lessens the value of what I'm doing there, right? But if you find out that I'm just doing it because I love her, then that's a beautiful, valuable thing. It's intrinsically valuable. So... I see that Jesus is saying that kingdom moments have that kind of value. They are intrinsically valuable. In other words, regardless of the outcomes, regardless of the results, they're just good. And that's significant because, remember our conversation here, we can't control outcomes. That means, but what we can control, sorry, is how we approach any given situation. So, if we choose to trust God and to live out God's values and to pray, your kingdom come, that has value. And we know what's going to happen in that scenario has value. Regardless of the outcome, it will often have good results. But even if unfair things happen afterwards, we can be sure that that has value. And even incomparable value, as Jesus says. That's unshakable for us. That's something that we can put our hope in. But if you're like me, you kind of struggle with that idea. Because this idea of that kind of value, I think it's hard to get your mind around. We're trained to see things differently. We're trained to look at things more like that outlook in Ecclesiastes. We're more concerned with usefulness, with outcome. We're more up on extrinsic goods than intrinsic goods. So, you know, I I get a job because I want to make money, Um, and I want to make money because I want to buy things, and I want to buy things because I want to enjoy them. Everything is valuable because it's useful, right? Heck, we even look at people this way, sadly, and we can feel it in ourselves. If we're not careful, we think of people as only valuable because they're useful, because they're productive members of society, And the sad thing is that's why when people have a serious illness or a terminal illness and they're at a point when they can't be so-called useful anymore, they feel like they've lost their dignity, they've lost their value. We've forgotten the truth that every human being has intrinsic value. Their value doesn't come from being useful. And let's be honest, I know for myself I'm guilty of this too. In the Christian world... We often look at value this way as well, mistakenly, about things. So why do we sometimes go to church? Because we want to get something from it. Why do we read the Bible? Because we want to get something out of it. Why do we pray? We're hoping we'll get something from it. When each of those things, the better way of looking at them is they're just valuable. They're just good in and of themselves, regardless of what you're going to get out of it. It's just good, you know. So it might be a struggle, to look at kingdom moments this way. But I think that's so important for us. I think that's what Jesus is trying to tell us and we combine it with the message coming out of Ecclesiastes. Because if we are overly concerned with um, outcome and looking at things as valuable only because of the outcome, then we're going to be disappointed. That's the message that we've looked at from Ecclesiastes. We're going to be severely disappointed disappointed because he can't control the outcome and life will be unfair and unjust and bad things will happen to good people. But if we focus on the kingdom, focus on the kingdom come and doing our part and trusting God for kingdom moments, then we know what's happening has lasting value, incomparable value. Great. So I'm going to leave off there. I'm going I'm to conclude now. And um, there's this story, I think, that Jesus gives us that, that summarizes this quite well, right? It's this well-known story of, um, of a lady who comes and anoints Jesus with her perfume. She's at a party, and she does this in front of the guests. So I'm going to read that for you. It's in, Mark, um, it's in all the Gospels in different ways, but Mark 14 tells it this way. Jesus was at Bethany, a guest of Simon the leper. And while he was eating dinner, a woman came up carrying a bottle of very expensive perfume. Opening the bottle, she poured it on his head. Some of the guests became furious among themselves. That's criminal, a sheer waste. This perfume could have been sold for well over a year's wages and handed over to the poor. They swelled up in anger, nearly bursting with indignation over her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why are you giving her a hard time? She has just done something wonderfully significant for me. That really portrays well what we're talking about here. What she did wasn't valuable because it was useful, because it was, you know, achieving something else. Jesus said it was incomparably, or sorry, Jesus says that it was wonderfully significant. It was a kingdom moment. She was showing her love and adoration for Jesus, an act of love for Jesus. And what's so interesting about this is, you know, Jesus says that that's the case, but the guests, they don't get it. They're focused on outcome style of value, right? So they see this and they're like, this was a waste. Why would you do that? You could have sold it, given the money to the poor. Giving to the money to the poor is a good thing. But in this case, this was a kingdom moment of a different sort, so to speak. And it was valuable for that reason. And it's interesting what Jesus says about it. He says um, in verse nine, and you can be sure, it's so valuable that you can be sure that wherever in the world the message or the gospel is preached, what she did is going to be talked about admiringly. Her act was a kingdom act that had value regardless of the outcome, so much so that it's going to be remembered for decades and centuries. And that's the truth. This is probably one of the most well-known stories in the gospel because it's so beautiful. So that kind of summarizes what we're trying to get at here with the value of the kingdom. But just to recap then, right? We've been talking about how the path of wisdom, we can think of it as, these, the, as like we're, we're learning along the way. And it gets more complicated. It gets more nuanced the more that you go along. Another way of looking at it is like a curriculum. The wisdom books are like a curriculum that are teaching us about wisdom and how to grow in wisdom. And We saw that as you advance along and even move into Ecclesiastes, things get complicated. Things get nuanced. You realize that life is complicated. Things sometimes aren't fair. And that's okay. It's good that the Bible is honest about that. But it also points us to Jesus' teachings on the value of the kingdom of God and the value of kingdom moments because those we can count on as being valuable regardless of the outcome because we can't control the outcome, but we can focus on the kingdom. And it's interesting how there's another parallel here between Ecclesiastes and Jesus because in the end, what Ecclesiastes says that we should latch on to, is kind of the present moments. The moments that we can enjoy. The gifts of God. So it says in 8.15, for instance, So I'm all for just going ahead and having a good time. The best possible. The only earthly good men and women can look forward to is to eat and drink well and to have a good time. Compensation for the struggle for survival these few years God gives us on earth. Now, I know there's a little bit of irony going on there, but still, he, he's saying that you can't count on outcomes, so you might as well enjoy the good moments that you have. Slow down, enjoy the good gifts that God gives you. In there, you can find value. Well, Jesus says, Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Don't worry Trust God with outcomes. Sometimes they won't make sense. But what you can do is seek the kingdom. Seek those kingdom moments. Live for those moments. And you will find that there is incomparable value in those moments. All right, let's, let's pray together. We've talked about a lot this morning. Let's pray now. Dear Heavenly Father, just, I just want to thank you for this, this message, this word to us. And this promise, Jesus, that when we seek the kingdom, we're seeking something of, of amazing value, a treasure beyond our wildest dreams. Help us to do that. I know when in this world, as you say, Jesus, we will experience trouble and it can beat us down. We can be trying our best to do our best, to live wisely, to love others, to to follow you, Jesus. But yet sometimes the consequences are really hard. Sometimes we're mistreated. Sometimes we're misunderstood. Sometimes we receive punishments for others. Like it just doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't line up. And that can get so confusing, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you're honest with us, that that's just, that is the nature of the world that we're in. But you give us hope, Lord Jesus, saying that we can pray your kingdom come, Lord God, that we can focus on the kingdom, and in that, find beauty, in that, find lasting value in this life. So we thank you for that, Jesus. Help us to trust you in that. Help us to do what we can on our part to live out those, that kind of, um, with that kind of outlook. As we trust your Holy Spirit to guide us and empower us. Uh, so it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen.